Well, imagine as you came in this morning, you noticed the construction zone right outside the front door. And I uh, want to thank those of you who helped create that mess yesterday. Uh, we had a lot of people who worked really hard on preparing that area for, um, for next Saturday, which next Saturday is the Day of Atonement. That means if you missed yesterday's work day, you can come next Saturday and help install the, the paver. So all the really hard work is done in terms of digging and that kind of thing. So next Saturday, we would love for you to come and uh, join some out here who will be doing that. Uh, if your small group is looking for a bonding experience, this is a great opportunity right out there. So I hope you'll do that. I want to remind you as well, at the close of our service today, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper together, a beautiful act of worship that God has given to us. It is for believers, for people who have chosen to follow Christ as their Lord and to place their faith in Him as their Savior. If you're not there yet, then the table is not for you yet, and you should anticipate that and uh, use that time for prayer and conversation with God about the state of your soul. And if you're a follower of Christ and you are willing to forsake your sin and come to the table seeking grace, then the table's open to you. So uh, I hope you'll anticipate that and use the proclamation of the word as a way to ready your heart today for that table. We want to continue our series we started last week in 1 Samuel on the life of David and seeking God wholeheartedly. Last week we went through 16 chapters of Samuel in one uh, fell swoop as we looked at three men's stories. The story of Samuel for whom the book is named. A man who hears and obeys God, a man of prayer. If you are part of your seeking God this year emphasis is in the area of prayer, I would encourage you to study the prayers of Samuel in the early part of this book. Um, Remarkable, remarkable man. But the people rejected God as their king, and they requested a human king like the other nations had. And that brings our second player into line, that's King Saul, the first human king of Israel, a man marked by partial obedience and fear. He's the one you remember when it came time for him to be king, they found him hiding in the baggage. He was also one who would only partially obey God, wouldn't fully destroy the enemy so that he could keep some for himself out of fear of the soldiers. He feared men more than he feared God. But towards the end of our time last week, David, King David, came onto the scene, not yet king, but yet anointed king by Samuel himself. He was, as the scriptures say, a man after God's own heart. Samuel says to Saul, but now your kingdom will not endure, King Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And that man, after God's own heart, is David. So today in chapter 17, we come to a very familiar story, the story of David and Goliath. Uh, Almost everyone has heard of this story, very common. I'm afraid that it's almost too common that we lose the wonder of this story when it's told to us and that we we can even lose God in this story. We all know the story. Little David fights big Goliath. And of course, David wins, right? Not exactly. Not exactly. I I want you to see there's, there's a different angle that the Bible presents on this story than the one I just told you. And in order to get you thinking along that direction, um, think 
with me along these lines. Imagine a little boy lives in a neighborhood and it is a football playing neighborhood. There's a small park in the area and one block of boys challenges another block of boys after school every day in no holds barred tackle football, 9, 10, 11 year old boys going at it. And this is their pattern, a lot of fun, a lot of bruises, a lot of good times until one day one of the boys who tends to be on the losing side often invites his big brother to come. His big brother is a reject from the high school football team, got kicked off because of his grades. So he shows up to play football with the 9, 10, and 11-year-old boys, which is fine as long as he's going to be gracious and let the little boys score. Uh Uh-uh, not this boy. He's a consummate jerk. He brings the same level intensity to the 9, 10, 11-year-olds as he brought with the 17-year-olds on the football field. And he hurts these little boys and sends them home crying. Well, word obviously gets home to mom and dad about these matters, and one of the little boys tells his dad about it. Now, his dad just happened to be a football player in his day. They used to pay him to play football. Okay, that tells you anything. 6'3", 245, outside linebacker, really fast. Um, Hasn't lost a step, hasn't gained a pound. He says to his son, son, next time that boy shows up to play, you let me know, and I'll play too. Okay? So sure enough, the next day, there's another football skirmish planned, and who should show up but this 17-year-old derelict. And a little boy steps out front, and he points at that big boy, and he says, you're in trouble today because my dad's going to kick your shins. Something like that. And so he runs home, tells his dad, and dad comes to play. And the game changes that day. Changes a lot. Turns out that 17-year-old gets his shin, shins kicked pretty good that day. And the little boy whose dad comes to play, he scores the winning touchdown. Now, who won the game? Well, they all won the game. The little boy, the little boy won the game, scored the winning touchdown. <coughs> Obviously, the real player who was the determinative player in that thing was the little boy's dad who showed up to play. And in the story that we're going to hear today about David and Goliath, there is a player kind of behind the scenes that really determines the outcome of the game. It's not the little boys on the field. There's someone behind the scenes. And I want to make sure that he gets credit and he gets glory as we tell the story once more today. So if you'll bow with me, we'll talk to that a behind-the-scenes player right now and ask him to teach us and guide us. Let's pray. Lord, if you would, in mercy, help us to see with eyes of faith today the difference you make in a life, in a battle, um, in a nation, in our world. I pray that you would show yourselves great and we might worship you rightly as we come to this table and as we leave this place to live out a life of faith in you. So God, may your word have its full effect on us today. We give you now our rapt attention as your word is read and taught. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokka in Judah. They pitched their camp at Ephes Damim between Sokka and Azekah. 
Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So the battle lines are drawn. Two armies facing each other. On the one hand, uh, the people of God, Israel. On the other hand, the Philistines, people of many gods. The Philistines were Israel's arch enemy at this point in time. Uh, They were pagan people who worshipped many gods. And they had been used in the past by God himself to judge his own people. If you were to flip back in your Bible a couple of books, you'd come to Judges, Judges 13, where it says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of those same Philistines for 40 years. So this is a people where there has been prolonged conflict and subjugation to for quite some period of time. And now, at the battle lines are drawn, a champion named Goliath who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. In a word, he's big. Okay. Scary big. And he's not even alone. He's got an armor bearer coming out on the field with him to issue this challenge. Because, in verse 8, we find that he stands there and he shouts to the armies of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of King Saul? Choose a man, have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Such a deal, right? Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So not only is he scary big, he is also defiant. And the soldiers... And especially, it singles out King Saul, are dismayed and terrified. In verse 12, David, on the other hand, was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So we have a vivid contrast. We have this nine-foot human fighting machine on the one hand, this great warrior clad in bronze, and then we have this guy named David, this little shepherd boy who's watching some sheep. He's just a boy. He watches the sheep part-time, and when he's not out there watching the sweet little lambs, then he's a musician playing for the harp for King Saul. I can't think of a more vivid contrast in players that are being introduced to us in this drama. Um, Eighty times, Goliath has come out and issued this challenge. Forty days, morning and evening, twice a day. But early in the morning, 
David has been commissioned by his father to go and check on his brothers, deliver some supplies, and bring back a report. So early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the enemy camp just as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other, and David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And this time, the 81st time, David heard it. And when the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. So Saul is offering a great reward, great wealth, marriage into the royal family, and to top it all off, no taxes. Okay. It's a great reward. It's a sad reward. Because this is Saul's battle. By stature, by promise, and by position, he's the man who should be fighting this battle. He's a head taller than anyone else in all of Israel. He's been promised by God that he would lead his people in victory over the Philistines. And yet Saul has never been willing to engage them in battle. And he is, he is the king. He is the man to be champion. But here he's essentially offering a bribe for somebody to do what he was called to do. Now granted, his fear may be because he has known that the kingdom has been torn from him and given to another who is better than he. And that man is David. David asked the man standing near him, uh, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. You have a sense, as you read this, that David is absolutely stunned by this situation. He cannot believe that there's even a reward being offered. Why would you need a reward for this? And 80 times this has been offered and no one has taken this challenge? No volunteers. You see, David sees things differently, as we're going to see. You sense it in the language that he uses compared to the other soldiers. In verses 25 and 26, the other soldiers say to David, they refer to Goliath simply as this man, this man. David calls him this uncircumcised Philistine, which is not a compliment. He's outside the covenant relationship with their God. They say he's out there defying Israel. David said he defies the armies of the living God. They refer to the man who kills him. David refers to the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel. David sees things differently. 
he remembers, it seems, what God has spoken concerning the likes of Goliath. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And God promises his people, I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. So from the perspective of faith, from the perspective of David, Goliath has this dark cloud of doom hanging over his head because he has cursed God's people. And as a result, God has cursed him. It's interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, there's another situation where there are giants in the land. And the word comes, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or terrified because of them, because of the giant inhabitants of the land. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them. And you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The exact thing that Israel was in the face of Goliath, dismayed and terrified, discouraged and afraid. But David sees things differently. He sees what the others do not see. He sees God. He sees God. Maybe it comes to him through Samuel. It comes to Samuel through the prayers of his mother, Hannah, who prays like this at the beginning of 1 Samuel. She says, Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And then also echoing in David's mind is the promise that came to Saul. The day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people Israel. He will deliver my people. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. And then Jonathan, Saul's own son, who initiates the first major battle with the Philistines. When he's starting that battle... Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. He sounds like David here. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. David sees God and he remembers God's promises to his people. And that's why in this whole account, God is not mentioned until David mentions him in verse 26. Halfway through the account is only when God shows up, when David shows up and mentions him. David sees God and he remembers his promises when everyone else only sees Goliath and has forgotten what God has said. And as a result of this, David is amazingly persevering and wildly confident. Verse 28 of our chapter. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at David and asked, Why have you come down here? 
And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. So the eighth born is confronted by an angry firstborn. But most importantly, he's a firstborn who does not see God here. And so Eliab accuses David of being an irresponsible as a shepherd and abandoning the sheep. But in fact, if you remember, David procured a shepherd to care for the sheep before he left. Then he accuses him of being conceited. But in fact, David came in humble submission to his father's request. That's why he's there. Then he accuses him of having a wicked heart. But we know that David's heart is after God's own heart. Lastly, he says, you came down only to watch the battle. Nothing could be further from the truth. But this is one of the ugly sides of unbelief when it lodges in your heart. It cannot endorse or even endure faith in others. So it mocks those who are more faithful. It slanders those who are more faithful. But David, even though his older brother, his oldest brother, assaults him this way, he's undaunted. Verse 29, he says, now what have I done? Can I even speak? And then he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. He perseveres. He persists. He cannot be deterred. So what David said was overheard, and it's reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. To which Saul replies, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he has been a fighting man from his youth. So Saul now joins David's older brother Eliab in discouraging David. You can't do this thing. But David perseveres. It's beautiful. As a shepherd, his concern is for others. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. But because David has seen God in his past, he remembers God. He will not relent. And in verse 34, he says to the king, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, I struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. There's that language again. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from, essentially, the paw of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go. And the Lord be with you. David remembers what God has done in the past. He has seen God at work. He's like the little boy playing football who's watched his dad play before. He knows what's going to happen when dad shows up. He has no doubts whatsoever. 
So Saul dressed David up in his tunic and he put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head and David fastened on his sword over the tunic and just tries even to walk around in this gear because he wasn't used to them. He says, I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took off the armor and he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in hand approached the Philistine. And now the trash-talking starts in earnest. Goliath gets to go first. The Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David, and he looked David over and saw that he was only a boy. He is too young to be fighting. He's, He's just a shepherd boy. He's ruddy and handsome. You could render that red and fair. Picture a little red-haired, freckled boy coming out to fight Goliath. And he despised him. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with a stick? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now it's David's turn. So David responds to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today, I will give the carcasses of the entire Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. The Lord will win this battle. And he will give all of you into our hands. So these taunts have escalated. David especially has raised the stakes. The whole army is going to be fed to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. The whole world is going to know what goes on on this battlefield that day and that there is a God in Israel. And that's the thing. The taunts of the combatants make you realize that this is not just a battle between two soldiers. It's not even just a battle between two champions who represent two armies, that represent two nations. But it is a battle between two gods, so to speak. It's a conflict between Yahweh and the gods of the Philistines. Their main god was a deity called Dagon. I'll call him Dagon. Chapter 5, he shows up earlier. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So the Philistines had captured the Ark of God of Israel and have now taken it into captivity. They carried the Ark into Dagon's temple, set it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took the Ark of the Lord in captivity, put it next to their God as a symbol of their uh, that they have captured and conquered him. They set him next to Dagon and he... Um, was kind of incorporated into their pantheon of deities. But the next morning, they find him on his face before the Ark of God. And so they all come in and they say, Dagon. Don't you love that? <laughs> and they took Dagon and put him back in his place. And then the following morning when they woke up, there was Dagon 
falling on his face before the, the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Now, this is symbolic of what used to happen to captives in military conquest. They would be decapitated and their hands of battle would be cut off as a symbol of absolute conquest. And so the symbolism has changed significantly. So Goliath should be slow to want a rematch between Dagon and Yahweh. Especially because he's from Gath. It keeps saying Goliath's from, Goliath is from Gath. In chapter 5, it continues. It says, the Lord's hand, Dagon's hand had been cut off, but the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity where the ark was. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Then the men of Ashdod saw what was happening and they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath, Goliath's hometown. So they moved the ark of God of Israel, but after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. And he afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. Goliath should have known better, but he raises the stakes when he curses David by his gods. And David responds then in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord. So at its core, this isn't just a battle between neighborhood boys. This is a battle between Yahweh and the gods of the Philistines. And this is Yahweh's battle. And he will win it without sword or spear, as David has said. God is the one who is exalted and David wants to exalt him before the whole world. Just as an aside, this is our calling to trust God to come and honor his word in our lives such that the fame of what happens at North Wake is heard amongst the nations. And the whole world will know there is a God and he is worshipped by the people at North Wake. Back at verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And that's it. That little brief description is the entire battle. One stone ended it all. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Just like David said, the Lord won the battle without a sword or a spear. After he struck down the Philistine and killed him, David ran and stood over him. And he took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. As you'll find out, he wanted a souvenir. So when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And then the men of Israel Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. Twice he says, where? Where did they chase him to? They killed him all the way to Gath, Goliath's hometown. They ran him all the way back right to where he was from. 
David's victory inspires the army to engage the fleeing Philistines. Just as David inspired the entire army to respond in obedience to God, that's his story's purpose for us. Just as the entire nation rose in obedience and faith to God, that's what David does for us. His name is listed in Hebrews 11 as one whose life is intended to cause us to walk by faith in God. Because David saw the reality of God, because he remembered God, he persevered and he prevailed. This morning, in what God has called you to do and be, are you following like Saul Or are you following like David? Do you see God in his glory with you in the thing God has called you to do? Do you remember his faithfulness in your life and trust him? Are you acting in expectant faith or are you hoping someone else can be paid to step in and take over for you? See, at every temptation, at every temptation, we have the promise of the presence of the same God as David. In Hebrews chapter 13, we're being warned to keep our lives free from the love of money and to be content with what we have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And I'd like to issue some specific challenges to specific groups of people in our church. And some of you may not be in these groups, but you may get hit by the shrapnel and just take that from God. Okay. Um, first of all, dads, God has called you to shepherd and lead your homes. He has called you to step forward in faith. when others may cower in fear and lead your family in trusting God and honoring his ways. Can you see that God is with you in this sacred calling? Those of you who are older brothers and sisters... Do you know why God put you in the family order the way he did? Not so you could be like Eliab, but so that you could be a godly example to those who follow after you. So that by your example, your youngers, younger brother and sisters will see the trustworthiness of God in your life. Your life will be the history that they will look back on and choose to follow God themselves. And if you are the younger one and the older ones become wayward, you dare not follow in their footsteps. Instead, like David, you follow God in spite of them and because of you, they will turn and obey God as David's three older brothers joined the battle in faith following his victory. 
in the thing God is calling you to do? Can you see him with you according to his promise? Do you remember his faithfulness to you? David saw things differently. He saw God with him according to his promise. Well, our story ends, interestingly enough, as it begins. And I think I'm going to have to read it to you because it got wiped out. Starting in verse 55. It says, As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, O king, I don't know. King said, find out whose son this young man is. I don't think it's that Saul didn't know David, but he did not know who his father was. And that was the topic of concern. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. And David said these words, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. And it's interesting, when you hear the story told, maybe you picked up on it. That's the way David is introduced at the beginning of this, service, of this story, the son of Jesse of Bethlehem. And that's the way the story ends, with David as the son of Jesse of Bethlehem. And we mentioned last week that when you hear something about the, the anointed king, who's the son of Jesse of Bethlehem, that ought to set off bells and whistles in your mind about another great and future anointed king, the great anointed king of Israel, and of all peoples, who would come as a descendant of David and of Jesse of Bethlehem. And that's found fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1, Oh, God, I wiped that out between services too. I apologize. Matthew chapter 1, which reads this way, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And if you read down just a few verses, it'll say, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and then on to the first verse of chapter 2, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That when we read of this tremendous victory that David won, we are to think of another great king who David anticipates, who won an even greater victory. See, as David won this great spiritual conflict in the name of the Lord, in like but greater fashion, Jesus is the fulfillment of what David portrayed here. Because on the cross, Satan was defeated by Jesus. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, we find this statement in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That on the cross, Jesus fought a spiritual battle far greater than David and Goliath. And on that cross, he distinctively won a victory that slayed Satan's hold on men and women with the fear of death. That because of Jesus' own death for our sins and his resurrection, we need not fear death anymore. Satan has been conquered. 
So in our story today, David heralds Christ and his great victory anticipates the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And so as we gather at the table today, we are remembering the great victory that Christ has won for us. That David's victory over Goliath was just a foreshadowing of it. We celebrate the greatest victory of good over evil in history. And we live our lives in its shadow. Can you see God with you in that battle? Can you remember his promises that flow to you from the cross and the resurrection of Christ himself? 1 Corinthians 54 uses this language of victory to encourage us. It says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. John sounds the same theme in 1 John 5. Can you advance that for me, please? I've got a dead thing. Thank you. Uh, The other way. Thank you. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. By faith, we come to the table today to remember the great victory that is ours in Christ by his death for our sins and by his resurrection from the dead. So together, we remember that this great victory came at a great price. That on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.